Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with uh, Future Tech Podcast and also the uh, Secrets of Attorney Marketing Podcast. My guest is Josh Becker, the CEO of Lex Machina, L-E-X-M-A-C-H-I-N-A, LexMachina.com. Josh, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so tell me um, a little bit about what Lex Machina does first. You know, I always want to start off with the basics. Sure. Um, well, first, uh, I'm pretty serious. We, we, we call it Lex Machina. So you think like the Greek or Latin. Um, Machina. And, Sorry for the mis- yeah, mispronunciation. So. So. No, no problem. So... You think about it, this kind of law machine or word machine is the origins of, of the name. And it really is that combination of, um, of technology and law, right? Um, it's fundamentally about changing the practice of law, uh, about bringing openness and transparency to the law. In fact, it started as a public interest project, as I'll describe later, um, at Stanford for many years. Um, but, um, but, but, yeah, so that's uh, the, the origin of the name. Um, in terms of myself, I've got a background both in venture capital and entrepreneurship. So started in the very early internet days of 1994, we started our first company, um, which is wow. still a public company. Yeah, still a public company today called Dice.com, which is an IT job site you may have heard of. Uh, went out to Stanford to do law school and business school and, you know, got very connected out there and um, worked on a number of different projects and became co-head of the Venture Capital Club, and so got into venture capital when I graduated in the late 
90s, which were crazy and interesting and fun and not fun times uh, to be doing technology, survived a couple of downturns. And it came into Lex Machina through the Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs. This was a relatively new angel group at the time that was um, starting up. And they found Lex Machina, which was, again, it was a public interest project for about three years to bring openness and transparency uh, to the law. And the first, the goal of it initially was to build a database of patent litigation because you had all these companies that were being hit by lawsuits from what they considered patent trolls. Um, and that was the period where you started to have this dramatic escalation of those kinds of lawsuits that was costing them a lot of money and a uh, big distraction from their uh, what they're trying to do for research and technology. So they turned to Stanford and said, can you help us? And that was really the origin of, of, of the project was saying, hey, can you really can build a database of patent litigation? And they gave $3 million to Stanford Bunch of, you were talking about Apple, Intel, Microsoft, uh, Genentech, a couple law firms, Fenwick and West, and Oric. And it was a lot for an academic project, but not for the task at hand. They said, you know, we're going to have to to use technology. Fortunately, at Stanford, um, you had folks like Andrew Ng running machine learning, Chris Manning running natural language processing. And after many failed attempts they, uh, to get those guys involved, finally they hired one of their top students and, and they got engaged. And that was really the origin of, of the, the company, that the blending of the legal expertise at Stanford Law with the technology expertise of, of folks like Andrew and Chris. A quick question in there. What, 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 did the, um, what was the help needed to fight against the patent trolls? What was the whole goal of the project? Sure. Well, um, essentially, what these folks found themselves famously um, for a long time, until up until really today, it's, it's, it's starting to change for a variety of reasons. Patent lawsuits were being uh, many times um, held down in the Eastern District of Texas, which is a small um, part of Texas, but a court that was considered very favorable to these patent claims. And um, and you had all these companies all of a sudden be dragged into court in the Eastern District of Texas saying, you know, who's this entity suing me? It's some entity, you know, United, um, you know, some made up name, right? You know, uh, United Technology or whatever, you know, that's an actual company, but something like that, right? Some very nondescript name. Um, and so, going, you know, who's suing us? Um, what's our pattern of behavior? What should I, you know, what should my strategy be? Um, and, you know, they hit on a problem which is really endemic in all of law, which is there's no data. When I say no data, I mean there's no data about judges, no data about law firms, no data about attorneys. Um, everything is anecdotes, right? It's all reputation-based. It's all kind of anecdotes. Yeah, I heard this about this district, or here's my experience. Not to devalue anyone's personal experiences is valuable, but um, it's not data, right? Well, it's all in, it's all in walled gardens, and it's all in the heads of various attorneys and people. Right. It is. In the, yeah, some of it is in the heads, but but in one head, you know, no one can no one head can process and say, well. Let me tell you what's happened in the last 3,000 lawsuits in front of Judge Gilstrap, right? I mean, you can still only right. process what you can process. You have your experience and knowledge, which is valuable, but we wanted to marry that with the actual data. And we realized that if we could really just code these cases, and if you think about a lawsuit, it's a series of events, right? Um, so if I say, hey, um, Richard filed um, a motion uh, for summary judgment in this case, um, involving, you know, here are the parties involved, 
here was Richard's attorney, here was the opposing attorney, um, here's when it, that motion was filed, here's when it was um, ruled upon, um, here's what patents were at issue, and here's what happened, right? That's like one event. And basically what we're knitting together is millions and millions and millions of those events. And if you do that, then all of a sudden you have really good structured data um, about what happened, right? And has this happened in the past? And, um, you know, how has Richard's attorney behaved in similar cases in the past? And what's the judge's pattern of behavior? And all that is now um, revealed through the data, which, again, isn't to say that any one case will be exactly like any of the others. No, of course not. But um, it gives, can give you a strong sense of, hey, what's the timing? You know, how long will this motion take, right? What, you know, what's, you know, what's, how has this judge ruled in these kinds of cases in the past? And all that stuff is now valuable information that we're making available to folks. Well, how much of an effect would this profiling have? You know, if you look at thousands of cases and, you know, judge so-and-so tends to respond this way to these kind of issues or, you know, if you file a motion to do whatever, this judge tends to favor those motions. I mean, in the aggregate, what, how much better of a result can you get and how much does this kind of intelligence help? Well, um, it could help a lot in a specific case. You know, but, you know, we said, you know, even, if it, even if it changes the odds a couple percentage points, right, that could make all the difference. So, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of very even, again, because there's no data in law today, even a lot of very basic stuff can be very helpful, right, which is, you know, who's the attorney I should hire in this case? Well, traditionally, that would be a very reputation-based thing. You know, you'd call your friends and say, hey, I need a good patent attorney, or you happen to use so-and-so law firm for corporate work. So they'd say, great, let me bring our RP guys. And you say, sure, great, let's bring them in. But um, maybe they're not the right IP guys. Maybe their IP guys actually don't have a lot of experience in this kind of case, right? Maybe another firm um, would be a lot better suited um, to give you advice and ultimately win this case, right? Um, well, now that's available through the data where it wasn't before, right? So again, even very basic you know, decisions to make, like who should I hire, right? That can now be informed by, um, you know, by the data. Um, and um, it can have a great, looking at the data, can have a great impact on strategy. Or, you know what, you may end up making the same decision you were going to make before. But now it's, a, you know, what we call a data-driven decision, right? Um, you know, you're, right. you're making that decision um, uh, based on the best available data that's out there. So what are the current projects that you're working on, or which, which ones have you found to be the most important to get data on to help decision-making? Well, we're, we're now knocking them off, right? We're just trying to – I mean, we want to do this for all the law, right? So we started with patent law. We perfected it for nine years with patent law, three at Stanford, and then we spun out. And now we've then started to do – we first started to do the other areas of intellectual property because those were um, adjacent, right, areas like copyright, like trademark. Um, then we started getting into – Areas like securities and antitrust, you know, really fundamental to um, our society, to commercial law, to employment law, right? Um, which turns out to be a ton of law. Product liability law, where there's, we have more product liability lawsuits in our system now than all the other lawsuits combined, right? Um, huh. So uh, very important to both plaintiffs and defendants, uh, of course. Um, and we're continuing to roll out new areas, and so that's the fun part. We're knocking off new areas, um, and each area takes us, you know, about a year to, to do, and that's, you know, with a team, because we have a human team that has to review every case as well. Um, you know, the machine gets us, say, about 90% of the way, but there's certain things that we need a person to review to actually figure out the outcomes, a legal expert. 
So it's that melding of, that's why it's, you know, law plus the machine, because we really need both. Um, but, um, but we're also, you know, we're, we're continuing to roll out new features um, that, and every time we do so, it's something that, you know, no one knew before, like on damages, right? So we came out with a damages explorer. So you now, you now can say, hey, I want to see damage, you know, any damage judgments between 50 million and 150 million, you know, in front of this judge in this kind of case or something like that, right? Um, so we'll continue to roll out analytics on different um, aspects of, um, of the law. How public is, the, uh, is this data? Is it difficult to get? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, um, it, at, at the federal level, right, you can think about lawsuits, um, um, you know, maybe about 500,000 federal lawsuits a year, whereas, um, whereas in the state court, civil lawsuits is probably another maybe 10 million. Um, the, um, everything federal is available, but not free. Um, so there's a system called Pacer, which anyone can go and pay, you know, five bucks for one case or, you know, download a couple documents. Um, for us, we need every case, every document we can get our hands on, um, or certainly all the key documents. And that is very expensive. So, you know, yeah. if you want to roll out a new, a new area, you know, we're talking about a million to $2 million just in document costs. So, um, we raised $8 million of venture capital, which kind of got us, um, you know, pretty far. And we had, you know, term sheet for more. And then Lexus came along and said, hey, we, you know, we see what you're doing. We understand analytics. We are really deeply committed to analytics, but no one's doing what you're doing. We want to put you on our platform and we'll give you access to more documents, right? Um, and so Lexus acquired us a couple of years ago, and that allowed us to expand a lot more, uh, a lot more quickly. Yeah, I heard that Pacer is uh, is a monopoly and it's they're super expensive. So I was wondering how you got your data. It must be very hard, but partnering with Lexus or being absorbed by them is great. Yeah, that helps. Now, state is very interesting because most states have very, very poor data. You know, California spent a billion dollars trying to build a unified court record document system and and then said we we fail, we give up, unfortunately. Um, So. you know, we're starting with states that do have better data, um, and Lexus itself is, is, is you know, investing heavily trying to um, get the best state data possible. But um, we are rolling out now various states, but it's, a, it's more hand-to-hand combat to get that data. So what, um, you know, I mean, without giving away proprietary info, what kind of insights have you gotten from this analysis? Uh, anything surprising or interesting in a given area of law or... You know, judges yeah, I mean, uh, all, truly biased or unbiased. I mean, what, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, all the time. That's the fun part. So every time we, we launch a new area, we, we come out with a report, which highlights, you know, some of the more interesting um, dynamics. So I can get you a copy of, you know, one of our, um, you know, reports. And, um, you know, but they always, you know, reveal stuff that no one knew. And it could be, you know, it's everything from sort of fun Stuff that the press likes about, you know, which company gets sued, you know, for patent lawsuits, right? Who gets sued the most and, or, you know, who's suing the most, right? Who, who are these, you know, patent, what we call patent monetization entities who are, who are suing the most, um, or, you know, what are the biggest judgments and what are the big, you know, so um, that kind of stuff is always fun. But then there's, you know, a lot for practitioners themselves just to sort of get a sense of, which is, right, like this judge, you know, this judge is perceived as very plaintiff friendly, say. Um, but you know, there's a judge in, in the, in New York, um, for example, um, you know, at a high level, you think, oh, this is plaintiff friendly, but then you dive down 
and we enable you to dive deep into specific kinds of patent cases, right? So it's not just generally, oh, how do you rule in patent cases? Because pharmaceutical patent cases are very different than tech patent cases, for example. Um, so we, able, we enable you to filter down, um, and then it turns out that's not true. You know, the conventional wisdom was really wrong, um, you know, for this kind of case, right? So it's that kind of stuff that's fun when, when there's really the conventional wisdom says one thing, and then we find out, no, that's really not true. How, uh, how do lawyers respond to this? I would think that they would say, you know, I have 20 years experience, and I know what, uh, you know, the judges, and I know how to do this, and I don't need a machine telling me what to do. It's a great, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, we certainly faced a lot of that early on, and, um, you know, we still do face that from time to time. But I think, you know, it's like any other technology adoption, right? It's like, it's cro- we always thought about it as crossing the chasm, right? We got to get those early adopters, you know, who really embrace technology. A guy like, you know, uh, Jim Yoon at, at Wilson Sistini, um, or um, you know, several folks at Fish and Richardson that were big early adopters, um, um, uh, and Rick Frankel at Latham. You know, so kind of find those early adopters, you know, who who kind of got it right, and then we developed these cases with them, and and then ultimately had to, you know across the chasm into into making it more of a must-have, not a nice-to-have, you know. And so I'd say, yes, we did face that early on a lot for sure, right? In fact, early on, we didn't even call it data. We'd be like, oh, we're just selling history, <laughs> you know. It's, you know, you want to understand history, right? Um, and, uh, and so, um, but I think over time, it's become more and more and more and more accepted as they say, oh, okay, well, and, uh, you know, so-and-so has it, then I want to have it too, right? And people realize it's not, you know, in general, there's a big debate of AI and law and is AI going to replace lawyers or not. And I have some, some thoughts on all of that, but um, certainly with what Lex Machin is doing, um, you know, that's not the case. People realize, hey, this is, this is just an additional tool, right? And why wouldn't I want to have information, you know, access to this kind of information, right? Well, I could see it could become the standard, you know, if this is used more and more and more, you are, I mean, it's funny, actually, you know, if you're a lawyer, and you're going to represent someone in a patent case. And if this gets to be pervasive enough, it could be a failure of your best efforts if you don't use it, which would be kind of funny, you know, but it seems like this would be the new uh, ante for the poker game. Well, it, you know, it, you know, from your lips to God's ears, as they say, but yeah, I, I do think that, um, uh, you know, I do think you're right. I mean, you know, early on, one of our advisors, you know, this is years ago, we you remember him telling us, like, Listen, lawyers commit malpractice every day, right? That was kind of what he said, you know. And and but you know, and then he would say like, hey, you're right. At some point, you know, it should be malpractice not to use, um, you know, Lex Machina, right? Because hey, the information's out there. If you want to best serve your client, you should have access to the data. Um, so yeah, I'd say we're not, you know, we're not quite there yet. But uh, I, 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 you know, I, I appreciate the sentiment, and I think, um, you know, it, it, it is. It is you know, kind of slowly becoming a standard. Well, is, do you think that there will actually be um, law created that will regulate the use of it? You know, are there, are there forces trying to stop it? Are there forces trying to require it? I mean, do you see any of that happening? Not yet. No, I haven't seen that on either front, you know, either requiring or, or someone trying to stop it. Um, so, um, yeah, I think just a bit, you know, it kind of has to take its course from, from, you know, just from tech adoption, right? And we're just trying to apply 
And one of the things that I've done here, actually, I built an accelerator for Lexus as well. So we've had other, you know, startup legal companies come through, and I've seen them now go through this, some of this as well. And you know, and and um, you know, and I just um, try to encourage them to do what we've done. You know, just be very focused on the use cases, right? You can't come in and just say, "Oh, hey, there's this cool whiz bang technology, and you guys need to have it," right? It's like, you know, I'm too busy, right? Like, what, you know, how's this going to affect, you know? How does this affect my ability to do my job, you know, today, tomorrow? Um, how does it help me? How does it help my clients, right? And so you have to be really focused on those use cases. And then you have to, um, you know, again, write up those case studies and, you know, and, and start with slow adoption beginning. But, you know, which is, that's, that's the reality of the legal world. You know, you're, you're, you're just not going to get something that happens um, very quickly by technology standards. But, you know, I think... Should more and more, you know, just last year alone was a huge year where we had of the, you know, M Law 100 top law. You know, we went from I think 40, you know, we'd had most, the first nine years we had like 43, and then we got 20 new ones last year. Like there was a really big chunk, you know. So I think you know you can expect that over time if you if you keep if you if you keep at it. Um, have you had cases where the other side? You know, has found out that they're you got your guys are using Lex Machina, and were they did they give up and throw their hands up in the case? Did they I don't know? Did they change their behavior? Have you seen any of that? I haven't. You know, I haven't seen that per se. I mean, I think what you do see, you know, people bringing the data now into say settlement negotiations, right? And say like, hey, you know what? If you guys go forward here, sir, you're likely outcome, right? Um, and therefore, you know, the settlement needs to be bounded by X and Y, right? Or something like that. Um, or in a competitive situation, you know, part of the use case, uh, one of the use cases, we call it get the case, win the case, right? Law firms are using the data to compete um, against other law firms to, to win business from, from their clients, right? And so somebody might say, um, we've had people say, yeah, you know, I was tired of, of uh, you know, uh, of, of, of losing out, you know, in more graphic terms, you know, I'm tired of losing out to this other firm, so we got to get, you know, we need to get Lex Machina too, right? So I've seen it from that perspective. Um, we've also seen it, you know, start to appear in briefs. You know, where people have actually cited the data, you know, for a particular transfer motion, for example. And they say, hey, we need to transfer. And according to Lex Machina, here's sort of the case, back, you know, here's how long it takes to get to trial in this case, in this district versus this district, right? And here's the backlog. Um, and that's what we want to transfer. So we, we are seeing things uh, like that. Yeah, and I guess it would affect settlements because if you if you know, okay, well, this kind of case tends to take about two years and costs, uh, you know, 300,000 legal fees on average. If we settle for this amount, because the damages always tend to be this much, it's better to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, um, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big use, right? Because a lot of these cases, you know, do come down to settlement at some level. Right. And, you know, I mean, I can't wait till we get to do, uh, more criminal law, right, on a state basis, and that will be really fascinating. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to to those days as well, right, where so much of it is plea bargain and trying to figure out what a, what a sentence might look like, right? Well, what are the areas of law that you feel need this more than others, like desperately? And, you know, are there going to be some areas where it's going to be really difficult to get data, or is it just like, you know, in inexorable march to get them all? I think it, you know, I think it will happen. You know, again, some states are just behind others. Um, 
And but you know even there sometimes you can go county by county, um, you know if you have to. Um, but I think um, yeah, I mean areas like Patton have been you know antitrust securities um, for sure. Uh, employment I think it's been really helpful. Um, the um, and then like I said you know areas like criminal law right or um, some of my friends going through divorce litigation <laughs> that might be pretty helpful. Um, um, you know, so I think some of those areas will, uh, w- will be, uh, will be really important, but I think, you know, all states, you know, eventually, I think states are moving in this direction. It's just, um, in some states, it's just, you know, harder for them to, uh, you know, to, to, to budget the dollars. But I think, you know, the, that money could also be used a lot more wisely too. Right. So I think they'll see over time that, um, you know, it's, you know, they can, they can have a good system for, for not that much money, right? And once they do that, the, the data will be better. Okay. Yeah, what's the timeline you think to to where you expand to other areas, and what do you think is going to become commonplace in every area of law where this is used? Well, I got you know we're every every year we're rolling out more. I mean, last year was a huge year. Um, this year, a couple more federal areas and, and a couple states are our goal. Um, so I think you know um, in terms of every area law every jurisdiction, at least sort of at the state level, um, you know, I think in sort of three to five years. Um, but, you know, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen a lot more quickly. But it's just, you know, again, it's at that state or even the local county level, that that's where the struggle is going to be for, 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 for data. But we're making a big investment. Okay, very good. Well, what's the best way for um, interested parties to get in contact with you? You know, attorneys that are in a given practice area that want to See if you have tools for them, you know, potential partners, et cetera. Yeah, I, certainly. Um, I mean, they can check, check out the, the website, lexmockina.com. They can email me personally, uh, jbecker at lexmockina.com. And, um, you know, I'm also happy to be a conduit to other things that Lexus is doing. I mean, Lexus, um, I have to give them credit, um, is the clear leader in analytics um, and um, has really outflanked Thompson in this regard. Um, there just aren't comparable products uh, from the other providers. And it's not just Lex Machina. You know, Ravel was a startup that also um, spun out of Stanford, folks we know well, um, that was also acquired by Lexus. And as opposed to the analytics that we're doing, which are really, you can think of them as like litigation strategy analytics, they're doing analytics on um, the legal language itself, right? So think about more as a traditional legal research case, use case, um, but they're analyzing the judge's language, right? What do they cite most often? Which briefs do they cite? Which do they cite? And um, uh, I mean, which you know rulings do they cite? And the you know, so you can speak in the language that that judge can hear, right? So that's one of the other really interesting areas. You know, there's another company called Intelligize that they bought, which is doing analytics on SEC documents, right? So get really interesting analytics on deals and transactions, and you know, hey, I want to see deals between. That happen between you know 100 million and 500 million that have this kind of term or this clause or things like that. Um, that's really fun. Um, and even and some technology is helping you know law firms mine their internal data. Right? They're saying, hey, well, you know, I've, I've done more of this kind of case than anyone else. Right? Why can't that be strategic advantage to my firm? So yeah, I'm also happy to be a a guide to um, some of that work that's happening as well. Okay, very good. Well, I appreciate being on the podcast, and uh, I'm hoping that this will uh, level the playing field and, and help you know small guys and 
the people involved in litigation, which sucks for everybody, uh, you know, to have a better time of it. Good. Well, I appreciate it. your questions were right on. And even that last sentiment is one that I shared very much as well. We say, you know, this can help, you know, give a boutique that doesn't have, um, you know, a ton of associates or a ton of paralegals to try to dig into some of this stuff, you know, give them as great, as good access as a much larger firm, right? So, or, um, you know, we have a, a law firm or two in Korea, not that they're going to practice law in the U.S., but they can have access to good information what's happening in the U.S. legal system. So, um I do hope it'll help with level the playing field. I appreciate that sentiment. Okay, hold on a second. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.